We are going to be reading today in Luke chapter 1, reading from verse 76 through 80. Luke chapter 1, verses 76 through 80. What I'm going to be talking about today is to the believer in Jesus, peace. Attaining peace in your life to the believer, attaining peace. And to the unbeliever in Jesus Christ, salvation by the forgiveness of sins. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 76, it says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His way, to give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So this is concerning John the Baptist. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. John the Baptist was the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And um, when he was born... Zacharias, who was his father, gave a prophecy. The first part of Zacharias's prophecy was concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, who was going to be born in six months from this time. But the second part of his prophecy concerned his own son, who was John the Baptist. And what he says about his son is in verse 76, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. This was all new. I know to the believer, there's nothing new here. But to the Jew, the first century Jew, this is all new. To give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Prior to this, acceptance came by obedience to the law. Obedience to the law. There was no forgiveness of sins that led to salvation. This concept of salvation was totally different to them. This is the first indication that they're going to have the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. This is a new concept that comes with the Lord Jesus Christ. To give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. This is enormous. We will touch on that. But let's continue. It says, because of the tender mercy of our God. This is because of His goodness, because of His mercy. It says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it is the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. It is the kindness of God. The kindness of God leads men to repentance. God in His kindness speaks to us kindly. God in His kindness tells us what will befall us if we don't follow Him. That's a kind act. Isn't it kind to go to somebody and to say, your house is on fire, get out of your house? They say, well, it's cold outside. Why are you pulling me out of my house? Your house is on fire. It is a kind act to pull them out of their house even when it's cold because their house is on fire. God speaks to us and He warns us and all these warnings are because of an act of kindness. 
says, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. This is from Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. The last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. After that book was written, there was 400 year gap where no word of God was given. No prophet came. John the Baptist actually came in the spirit of an Old Testament prophet. Even though he's in the New Testament, he was very much like an Old Testament prophet proclaiming the, the way of the Lord. And it says in Malachi, it speaks of the sunrise from on high. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, the sunrise that is going to come. This speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in the scriptures points to our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. He says, with, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those, to shine upon those. That's the third person pronoun. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. This is speaking of, from. this is a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. It's a prophecy that Jesus is going to come, that the Messiah is going to come, and He is going to speak to the Gentiles. He is going to bring, it says, to the Gentiles on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember when Jesus uh, uh, confronted this demon-possessed man who had seven demons in him. This occurred on the other side of the Galilee. This was to the Gentiles. Remember they were farming and they were, they were herding uh, 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 pigs. Jews didn't herd pigs. These were all Gentiles. Jesus ministered to the Gentiles. This is talked about in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. This is a prophecy from that portion. He says, "...to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death." This is how the description in the Old Testament that He was going to come and shine upon the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to guide our feet in the way of peace. To guide our feet. That's the first person pronoun, to the Jew. So in the first part of that verse, He's speaking third person pronoun. He says, to shine upon those. He's speaking of the Gentiles. And then He says, and to us, to guide our feet in the way of peace. This is now to the Jew. He's going to guide our feet in the way of peace. And then what he does is he brings the Gentile in the kingdom. And then he begins to speak to us peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the desert until the day of his public appearance to Israel. He lived in the Judean desert. Outside Jerusalem. He lived away from the religious instruction of that day. And that's why he could bring such a different and profound message. Because he was not trained by the rabbis. He lived in the Judean desert. And that's where God spoke to John the Baptist. He speaks peace to the believer. Peace to the believer. Now I've been a believer for 41 years. One of the things of being a believer for 41 years is I get to see the lives of many people. And so people say, how do you know all this? Are you a prophet? I said, no, I'm not a prophet. I just have a lot of data points accumulated. So I'm a professor, and I've been a professor for over 30 years, and I work with students. So I know what happens in their lives. You do certain things, you're going to end up certain ways. You do that, you're going to end up with a painful life. And I don't have to prophesy over them. I already know it, because I've just seen the results of what decisions bring into a person's life. Jesus comes proclaiming peace to the believer. He says to shine upon him, verse 
79, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and to guide our feet in the way of peace. His intent is to bring us peace. But the other side of being a believer for over 40 years is this. I get to see lives of believers that have been beat up terribly. And we can blame Satan, that's fine. But associated with that is decisions that those believers have made that have resulted in the beating up of their lives. I'm not talking about the sicknesses that come upon people just because we're people and and things hit us. Because there's grace in that. That's not what beats up a life. That may beat up our flesh, but it doesn't beat up our spirit. In fact, many times in the midst of it, we are strengthened. What beats up the Christian life is this, is that we go contrary to the ways of God. We go contrary to His Word, and it tears apart the life of the believer. So that when I see them after a few decades, they go from being this person who's all excited about the Lord to like, are you even a believer? There's no substantive difference between you and a person of the world. There's nothing there. They don't read their Bible. They don't meditate on the Word of God. And you try to track this thing back. What is it that has destroyed your life? What is it that draws the believer so astray from the things of God? Remember, John the Baptist came proclaiming this. This is the prelude to the Christmas story. It says in Galatians, if you turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Paul is speaking to believers. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. He's speaking to believers, not unbelievers. This is a message for the believers here. Galatians 5, 17 says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Look at that, believer. You may not do the things that you please. If you do the things that you please, it's going to just draw you away from the Lord and you're going to get beat up terribly. Satan will take great advantage of it and beat you up terribly. The things of the flesh war against the things of the Spirit. We cannot do what we please. Not even in our own minds. We can't even do what we please in our own minds. Just, well, I didn't do it with my hands. No, it's in your mind too. Because nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'll just go out and commit adultery today. No, it comes by dwelling on this thing for weeks and months and years that then leads to the act. We can't do what we please even with our own mind. When we see our mind dwelling on something like that, we have to make a conscious act to turn it because it will draw you away from the Lord. I have many data points that show the destruction of the Christian life. Verse 18 of Galatians chapter 5. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's speaking to believers. I don't know how all this works out. But Paul says, I have warned you in the past and I'm warning you now. 
I forewarn you, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You want to see your life beat up as a believer? Go ahead and practice these things. Practice any one of them. That doesn't mean that you don't sin. It means that you quickly learn how to repent and say, God, forgive me, a sinner. Forgive me. But don't even entertain the thought of it. Because it will draw you in. And it will destroy your life. It will destroy your life. I've seen it over and over again. One of the things about having walked as a believer for 40 years is I see many people who I grew up with in the Lord, who I was excited with. We would go door-to-door witnessing together in the Lord. And their lives are just beat to bits because of these things. Because of these things. The Bible forewarns us. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. So how do we maintain the peace in our lives? The Bible is very specific. It tells us exactly how to do it. If we just look at it and follow it, we'll be fine. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. Finally, brethren. Look at that. He's speaking to brothers. Brethren. Those in Christ. He's not speaking to the unbeliever. Finally, brethren. Whatever is true. Whatever is honorable. Whatever is right. Whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. What do you do? You dwell on them. Dwell on these things. So in other words, my mind takes me into the craziest, most wicked of things all the time. If your mind doesn't do it, fine. My mind does that. And I have to make a conscious decision to turn my mind And to think of something that is good and right and holy and pure. It is a conscious decision. If not, my mind will dwell on that and dwell on that and dwell on that. And the next day and the next day and the next day. And lo and behold, I'm going to want to start practicing that very thing. He warns us and he tells us, how do we find peace? Whatever is good, you dwell on the good. You dwell, if there's anything good, you dwell on that. That's why it's so good to take the Word of God and to make it your daily meditation. If you do not meditate on the Word of God every day, you will become one of the statistics. I know it. How do I know? Because I've seen it. Those who do not meditate on the Bible every day go astray. The Bible warns over and over again. Psalm 1, Joshua chapter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Psalm 112, verse 1 and 2. Psalm 119, verse 97 through 100. The Bible says over and over again, we're to meditate on the Word of God every day. Every day, every day. It doesn't say that there's a blessing for three days a week. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. There's no such proclamation. It says for every day. You want to stay true to the Lord? You want to stay close to the Lord? You meditate on the Bible every day. Hear me in this. You meditate on the Bible every day. You pick up this book. I was trained here in Syracuse by a man named Brother Bak Singh and a man named Dr. Koshi. And they taught me to pick up the Word of God, open it up on my knees. Whether you get on your knees or not, that's fine for you. This is the way I was taught. And they say, Lord, speak to me through the Word of God. And I start in Genesis chapter 1 and I read through Revelation chapter 22. And when I'm done, I start again. So for over 40 years, I've been reading the Bible in that pattern. If you read the Word of God every day, you will remain close to Him. If you don't, you won't. 
Can I be more explicit? You dwell on these things. Now in verse 9, Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. The things that you've learned and received and heard in me. That's Paul speaking. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You practice these and the God of peace will be with you. Peace comes through practice. You practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You want peace in your life? You practice these things. If you want peace, you practice these things. John the Baptist came proclaiming of the Lord. The Lord came proclaiming peace to the believer. You will have peace if you practice these things. If you don't, you won't. And I've seen many very cocky people that think, I don't need this. And I don't say a word. I don't say a word. I just watch them for a decade. And I see the Word of God is true. They have been proved wrong. And the Word of God has been proved right again. You practice these things and it will go well with you. We must make a choice to walk in what He has for us. We must make this choice in Hebrews. We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also... But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Isn't that interesting? The word they heard is the same word that we heard. The word they heard didn't profit them. Why? Because they did not, was not united by faith in those who heard. You have two groups of people. They both hear the same word. One profits, the other doesn't. That's the testimony of life. I'm telling you, that's what I've seen. In 40 years of walking with the Lord, people, same people, hear the same word, sitting side by side in a church, hear the same word. Some profit, some don't. Why? Because those that don't did not unite it by faith. You follow these things, the peace of God will be with you. You don't, it won't. I urge the believer here today to take hold of this word. The next word I'm going to speak to you is from, from, from Luke 177. It talks about salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Salvation. To give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins in Luke 177. This whole concept of the salvation that comes through the forgiveness of sins. And I am assuming not everybody here is a believer. If everybody here is a believer, then you can just say amen along with it. But I doubt everyone here is a believer. I've never seen a church where everyone in it was a believer. If that's the case, then the church has a problem because unbelievers aren't coming in the door. And that's the only way we're going to get them saved. To the unbeliever, salvation comes through the forgiveness of sins. I have been so blessed. You know, um, George Mueller... I don't know if you've ever heard about George Mueller. In the mid-1800s, he, he started an orphanage in England. And he had this orphanage and he committed that he would never ask for a donation. 
he would just pray. Never have an offering, never ask for a donation. Just pray. When there was no food, he would get with the kids and pray. And people would bring food and money and all sorts. And the reason he did that, why did he start this orphanage? You think because he cared a lot about children? No, that's not the primary reason. He says it in his memoirs, what his primary reason was for starting that orphanage. It wasn't because he cared about orphans. He did, but that's not the reason he started the orphanage. He started that orphanage to show believers what could be done through somebody that had faith who was not particularly gifted in faith. George Mueller said, I don't have, he, of himself, that he does not have the gift of faith. So he chose something to demonstrate what could be done by just regular people if they would walk in faith. So he said, okay, I'll start an orphanage. And it was very specific. It was for, for boys only. And it was very specific ages. Something, I, I forget the ages, but like between 6 and 14. Something like that. And they had to have, both parents had to be not living. If his, the parents had just abandoned them, he would not bring them in the orphanage. You say, well, that's cruel. Well, he was a lot nicer than you and me. So he, he did plenty good. But it was very specific. Both parents had to be deceased. And he never lacked anything. This was a demonstration what God would do if a person who didn't have the gift of faith walked in faith. Now let me tell you about my own life. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I love to evangelize. I've tried to evangelize my whole Christian life. Gone door to door. I did graduate school at Purdue University. At the time, I knocked on every single door of every apartment that was non-university owned around that campus. I'd go out once a week in the night and just, just knocking on doors, sharing my faith. I see, I was seeing generally throughout my entire Christian life, one, two, or three people come to the Lord through my walk, through my ministry. One, two, or three people. That's not a person who has a gift of evangelism. A person who has the gift of evangelism is, is, is like the person who, who founded, who founded uh, um, a campus crusade. That man, it said, he could get in an elevator. He could, he could, Bill Bright could get in an elevator with somebody, and before that elevator hit its next stop, the person that he was talking to got saved. That was a gift of evangelism. People who are evangelists, lots of people get saved. So you see, I'm demonstrating to you, I don't have the gift of evangelism. But I started to pray. And I started to read books about the great evangelists. Uh, uh, Books by, 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 uh, um, by Charles Spurgeon. I read the, 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 uh, um, the evangelistic life of Charles Spurgeon. I read this book 15 times. The evangelistic zeal of George Whitfield, the great evangelist. I've read that 10 times. You say, what? I'm trying to understand. How do you do this? And then I started praying to that end. And so now I see about one person a week come to the Lord. Lead one person a week to the Lord. So I'm showing you what can be done through a person who does not have the gift of evangelism. I'm going to read some verses. If these verses bother you, then you have a problem. Because they're from the Bible. The Bible is not supposed to make us happy all the time. The Bible is supposed to challenge us, point out our wrong, and to spur us on to good works. 
It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. The Bible says we are to test ourselves. I'm not testing you. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? So if this kind of bothers you, then examine yourself. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture. There's no scripture that's not inspired by God. And if you want to instruct God on how He should have written long, long ago, you go ahead and try. But I'm just a messenger here. When I got saved, the first verse that was put before me, I came from a Jewish home in New York City. I was, it was Syracuse University, August 1977. And the young man had me read a verse. He was from the Navigators Campus Ministry. He said he'd like to give me an illustration of the gospel. I said, sure. And he had me read a verse from Romans 3.23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not a sinner. I never killed anyone. I never robbed a bank. How could I be a sinner? Because in modern secular Judaism, it's what you do with your hands. It's not what you do with your mind. In Christianity, it includes very much what you do with your mind. But in modern secular Judaism, if, if I didn't rob a bank or kill anybody, how could I be a sinner? So then he, he had me, he turned to Matthew 5, 28. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, and he had me read this verse. But I say to you that everyone who looks upon a woman with lust for her, has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Wow. I knew I was a sinner at that moment. Not only was I 18, but I was addicted to pornography since the age of 14. I was addicted to pornography. Used to work in a gas station on the Hutchinson River Parkway that would go into and out of New York City and, and the, the, the salesmen would throw away their magazines on Friday nights on their way home. And I became addicted at a very young age. And that, this verse convicted me of my sin. For the first time, I realized I was a sinner. I said, if that's the defi definition of sin, I'm a sinner. Because all of a sudden, it wasn't what I did to a woman. It was what was in my mind made me a sinner. Then he had me read another verse from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. God talks about a free gift. He says there's nothing you can work for. You can't work for this. You can't get it by working for it. It is a free gift. God offers a free gift. If you are not in Christ... <clears throat> I tell you today, God is offering you a free gift. This is a free gift. It's not something you can earn. He had me read another verse from Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. In the, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't even know there was a claim on the table that Jesus died for my sins when I was 18 years old. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. 
And this is the most remarkable verse, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now you think about this verse. Who can believe in a physical resurrection if they're an educated person? Who can do that? We don't have a lot of evidence for that. People don't rise from the dead every day. Who's going to believe that? It's an amazing thing. But this is the bar. We have to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that He's risen from the dead. If you do not believe in the physical resurrection of the dead, you are not a Christian according to the Bible. Not according to me. I have nothing in this. And it is a physical resurrection because in, in the end of Luke's Gospel, Jesus appeared to them. And he said to his disciples, his disciples said they thought, it says they thought they were seeing a ghost. And he said, no, 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 no. Come here. Touch me. See, I have flesh and bones. I have physically risen. Then to prove it to them, he said, do you have something here to eat? And they they gave him a piece of fish. Why a piece of fish? Because they probably said, Jesus loves fish. He was always multiplying fish. Fish were always part of his meals. Jesus took the fish, it says, and he ate it in their presence. And he says, you see, a spirit, a ghost, does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Spirit doesn't eat. Has anyone here ever seen a spirit eat? No. You see, spirits don't eat. He rose physically from the dead. Thomas said, I will not believe unless I stick my hand, my finger into the hole in his hand and my hand into the hole in his side. Eight days later, Jesus came through the door and he said, peace be to you. Shalom Aleichem, peace be to you. He said, Thomas, come here. You take your finger and you stick it in the hole in my hand. Now you take your hand and you stick it into the hole in my side and be not unbelieving, but believing. You think you're blessed because you see, Jesus said. He said, blessed is he who has not seen and yet believes. We are more blessed that we have not seen and yet believe. According to what Jesus said, we are more blessed. How can you believe in a physical resurrection? I only speak to educated people. I did prison ministry for 10 years, but that was 20 years ago. I was in a maximum security prison every week for 10 years. But in the last 20 years, I've only spoken to the educated. I speak to either undergraduate students in the university or graduate students or professors. That's all I speak to. I see one a week believe in the resurrection. I just tell them the gospel. You can research it all you want. There's plenty of evidence. It is the most factual event of evidence event that we have from that time period. By far, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ across any religion, any religious scholar will tell you that indeed the disciples believed that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead because they died for that. But we don't even need to research it. God drops it on the heart of it. The only way I can understand this is that he's put it on the heart of every man and woman to believe this. Because it's true. It's true. If you are not a believer, you come and you talk to me afterward, I will share with you for five minutes, you will walk away saved. You will be a believer. I know it. I've seen it over and over again. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the bar. <clears throat> the night of November 7th, 1977, I was in Lawrence Dormitory, room 1812, all alone. 
was on my knees. And I said, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner and come into my life. And the peace of God just fell upon me. And I felt this burden of sin that I had been carrying since he exposed to me my sin of, of pornography. And it just lifted right off of me. And then all of a sudden, someone was standing in my room. And I opened my eyes to see who it was. And I couldn't see anybody. But the presence of Jesus Christ was right there. And I just started weeping like a baby. And love poured out. I wasn't afraid. It was just love poured out. November 7th, 1977. On the Syracuse University campus. I was delivered from pornography that day. Still had other sins that I had to deal with. But that one that he showed... Exposed my sin to me through that. He delivered me from that day. I didn't tell anybody. What's this Jewish kid from New York City going to say? Two weeks later, the guy who had shared with me saw me walking. He says, Jim, have you received Jesus in your heart? I said, I think I have. Why do you ask? He says, you haven't stopped smiling for for weeks. Something happened to me that day. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. This is the most powerful verse that I know of. In bringing people to the Lord. After I've shared the gospel with them, I bring them to this verse. And as soon as they look at this verse and read it, I see a tear in their eye. I know that they're going to get saved. Within a minute, they're going to get saved. This verse, Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. I, even I... I'm the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Think about that. God says, I will not remember your sins. Wow. God is so gracious. I will not remember your sins. And then I bring them right back to it. You confess now with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that he's risen from the dead. The times when they don't confess and believe is because they don't realize that they're sinners. I had realized that I was a sinner. And then I take them through some other verses, and I'm going to read some of those to you that I take them through. This is just from the Bible. You know, if if I said these things, I would lose my job in the university. I'd lose my job if I went around saying this stuff. But I'm not saying it. I'm just reading it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 at verse 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see your name anywhere in that list? That's what I ask them. you see your name anywhere? <clears throat> Those are the ones <clears throat> who are not getting in. If you're on that list, you need to be saved. <clears throat> then I describe to them what hell is going to look like. Now, how do I know? I've never been there. Because <clears throat> the Bible tells us. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 9, it describes hell. It's an amazing description of hell. <clears throat> you want to know what it looks like in hell? Here's what it looks like. For those of you who are not saved, this is what your home's going to be like. Just telling you what your new home's going to be like. Isaiah chapter 9, chapter 14, verse 9. Sheol from beneath 
is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of all the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. That's what hell looks like. See that pile of maggots over there? They're going to bring you to your bedroom. That's your bed, that pile of maggots. Don't worry, you won't get cold. As soon as you lie down, there's that pile of worms over there. They're going to cover you. That's what it says. The worms are your covering. That's what it says. That's what your home's going to be like. If you don't know the Lord. I didn't say it. The Bible says it. How did Mark, how, how, did, how did Jesus describe hell? What did Jesus describe it as? It was in Mark chapter 9 verse 48. He said, it is where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. You know the worms that cover you? You can't kill them. They can't be killed. They don't die. And they'll be eating you. They just have fun eating you. That's the description that Jesus had of hell. Then he takes it on. He says, and the fire is not quenched. So there's something new here in the New Testament. He talks about fire. So you're first going to go into this holding place. And then eventually you're going to go into a fire. What's that fire like? Well, let's see. Let's see if we can find some more, more description of the lists. That is going to be included here. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. It adds more people to the list. That are going to go to this place. Remember, don't, don't get upset with me. I didn't write this book. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. You find your name anywhere in that list? Cowardly? Like too afraid to follow the Lord? The unbelieving? I mean, that condemns the unbeliever right there. The vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral? You have sexual immorality going on in your life? You're on that list. Those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars. I got every one of them with this one. I've never had a man or a woman say to me, I'm not a liar. Because the Bible says, if you say you're not a liar, you're a liar. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Some Bibles say uh, brimstone. Brimstone is the archaic name, the old name for sulfur. As a chemist, it's much better to hear, I'm a chemist, to hear sulfur. A sulfur fire is amazing. Look it up on the web, on YouTube. You can see what sulfur fires look like. It is liquid at that temperature. It's a liquid and, it, and it, so it's a lake. And the fire, it's not like the lake, the whole lake is on fire. There's a fire that just moves across it. Because sulfur dioxide comes and it, and it comes burning out and it quenches the fire. So the fire moves. So it's a constantly moving flame across this lake. Jesus tells us, the Word of God tells us what it's like. In Revelation chapter 20 verse 15 it says, If anyone's name... Revelation 20, verse 15, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. That's, what's a, that's what awaits the unbeliever. That's what it says. 
We are commanded, we are commanded to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to us in gentleness. He appeals to us. But in the end, there is the command. In 1 John 3.23, 1 John 3.23 says, This is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.23, this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. He commands us. He commands us. You say, well, I have to go home and pray about this. No, you don't. To go home and pray about this is disobedience. You deal with it now. Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the acceptable time. You do not delay on this. In Psalm 119, verse 60, it says, I made haste and did not delay to keep thy commandments. You do not delay in keeping His commandments. You don't need time to pray about keeping God's commandments. You follow through. This is what He calls us to. We follow through. And it's dangerous not to follow through. As God says in Hosea chapter 4, verse 17, He's joined to idols. Let them alone. At some point, God is just going to say, just let them alone. He's joined to idols. Just let them alone. Or the mandate might be even firmer. As in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 1, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. That's in Isaiah 38, verse 1. Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Remember, I'm just a messenger here. God wrote this. This is what awaits us if we delay in following Him. Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. So I remind you, Romans 6.23 says, The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God offers to you a free gift. You cannot have the gift unless you're willing to receive it. You must receive the gift. God holds out to you a free gift in His Son. He holds out to you a free gift in His Son. And as Isaiah 43, verse 25, we read, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. You're on that list of sinners? God said, I won't remember your sins. I won't remember them. You'll remember them, but I won't, He says. When God says, remember... It means that he won't act upon it. When he says, for it says, when God said, and he remembered Abraham, meant that he was going to act upon Abraham. He remembered good toward Abraham. It says that, that when they were in the ark, and he remembered them in the ark. It wasn't like, oh, I turned on the water and I forgot. I think I better go. Just remember it. I have to save him from the ark. No, <laughs> he knew it. He was going to act upon his goodness. He says, I will not remember your sins. I'm not going to act upon what your sins deserve. And that's why he reminds us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead, you will be saved. I'm going to pray. And when I am in prayer, I'm going to pray that prayer for the unbeliever. You just say that right along with me. If you are unsaved or you're not sure about your salvation or you're testing yourself and you're not sure, you say it right along with me. I confess that you are Lord. Lord Jesus, you are Lord. And I believe that you've risen from the dead. You say that right along with me. 
And to the believer, I remind you what we spoke of. This world will beat you up terribly if you do not follow His ways. If you give yourself to the lust of your mind and enjoy your mind games, it will draw you astray. This day, you're going to repent before the Lord and ask the Lord to take charge of that in your life. To take charge of that. So that as soon as this happens, you can redirect your mind onto the things that are good and right and holy and honorable. Things of good repute. Let your mind dwell on these things. And then you practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It will bring peace in your life when you practice that truth. It will bring peace in your life. Let's pray. Abba Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And this very day, I challenge the unbelievers who are here, or or for those who are not sure of their salvation, to pray with me this day and to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me because I am a sinner. Forgive me. I believe you are Lord. You are Lord. And I believe that you've risen from the dead. And Father, I pray that you would take those lives and you would start to build them up and mature them in you. Mature them in you. And Father, for the believers here whose minds have gone astray, who the world has just beaten them up because they've neglected you, they've neglected your word, they've neglected the promises in your word of that which will come upon the person who daily meditates on the word of God. Father, I pray that you draw them this day to say, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner. Forgive me for giving my heart, for giving my mind, for giving my hands and my body to sin. Forgive me for that. And Father, this day they would make a decision to take control of their mind, to have it dwell on that which is good and right and holy and honorable and of good repute. And that, Father, that then you fulfill your word that the peace of God will come when they practice these things. Father, have mercy on these fine people, I pray. Have mercy on them. Lord, I commit them to you and into your loving hands in the name of Jesus. Amen.